Chapter 8 of Double Challenge by Jim Gelgard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Trouble for Nels In the beech forest, just beyond Tumbling Run, a buck so young that budding antlers did little more than part the coarse hair on its head, stamped a front hoof and snorted. Old enough to have a vast admiration for himself and his own powers, but too young to have any sense, the little buck snorted again and tried to sound as ferocious as possible. Nosing about for any apples that might remain under the trees near Ted's camp, he had stood his ground gallantly when Ted and Tammy approached. Not ten minutes before their arrival, he chased a rabbit away from the trees, and he was so impressed by that feat that he thought he could chase anything. But when Ted and Tammy refused to run, he'd trotted into the forest to do his threatening from a safer place. He snorted again, more hopefully than angrily, and when he did not regain possession of the apple trees, he looked sad. Ted grinned at him. Junior has almost decided he can bluff us, Tammy. Poor little guy. He just about convinced himself that he's a real rip-snorter of a buck. Oh well. It's a hard world for everybody. Ted continued to string clotheslines between the apple trees. He pulled them tight, tested their tension with an experimental finger, and turned thoughtfully back to the camp. It might be a hard work for adolescent bucks, but if it weren't for the fact that his father was still lying out in the Mahala, right now it would be a pretty good one for Ted. True to his promise, George Bailu and his six companions had arrived the day before woodcock season opened. In his mid-fifties, Bailu was branch manager for an insurance company. Of the six men with him, only 26-year-old George Jr., an insurance salesman who thought his father was the greatest man in the world and who wanted nothing more than to follow in his footsteps, had been less than middle-aged. The other five were a filling station owner, a dentist, a toolmaker, an electrical appliance dealer, and a printer. Their party had been complemented by two dogs, an English setter and a Springer Spaniel. There had been nothing sensational about any of them, including the dogs. Except for George Bailu, his son, and the printer, none of the men had even been fair hunters. The three, far and away the best of the seven gunners, had averaged three shots for every woodcock brought down. The worst gunner, the electrical appliance dealer, who appropriately enough was named Joseph Watt, had fired at least fifteen times for every woodcock he put in his pocket. Yet Ted felt that the happy man had lived through an uplifting and near-sensational experience. Although unpretentious, his guests had definitely not been meek or demure. Whoever missed an easy shot, which practically all of them did at least twice a day, was needled mercilessly by the others. Not one among them, under the best of conditions, could have made even a meager living as a professional hunter. Yet they represented the best type of present-day game-seekers. They had come to shoot woodcock, 
and they would have been disappointed not to shoot some. But they did not pursue their quarry with the calculating coldness of Smoky Delbert, or, for that matter, with the intense concentration of Al Harkness, when Al was after a pelt he wanted. They were out for fun, and they had fun, and although game mattered, meat did not. There were so many woodcock that everybody, even Joseph Watt, got some. But considering the shells they shot, the camp rental, food, transportation, and licenses, their game probably cost them at least $15 a pound. After the first week ended, and there seemed to be more woodcock than ever, the flight was still coming in. They had decided that another ten years might pass before they saw this again, and stayed the second week. They'd left only this morning, promising to be back next year if there was another flight of woodcock, or for grouse if there was not. Ted hummed as he started toward the camp. The Beilu party had been wonderful guests, and certainly they were welcome back. If the Mahala was good for them, they were just as good for the Mahala. Ted gathered up as much bedding as he could carry. He'd been a little worried about it because he'd provided neither sheets nor pillowcases, but lack of them hadn't seemed to worry the Beilu party in the slightest. Most people who hunted all day were too tired by night to care whether their beds were formal or anything except comfortable. Next year, always supposing his father and he still had the camp, Ted thought that they would have to provide linens too. Summer campers spent more time in the camp than hunters did, and they were apt to be more particular. Ted hung the blankets and quilts on the lines he had strung and pinned them securely. If they aired all day long, they'd be fresh by night. The grouse hunters, Ted had corresponded with an Arthur Beamish, were due sometime after summer, and there would be ten in that party. The small buck that had been lurking hopefully near and awaiting a chance to come back snorted his astonishment when the bedding began to blow in the wind and ran away as fast as he could. The little fellow thought he was fully capable of dealing with anything natural, but wind-blown bedclothes smacked of the supernatural. Ted lost himself in thought. The camp was completely rented, except for the third week of small game season, and it would return a little more than $400 in rent. Added to that was the money he'd certainly get from John Wilson, and the total was more than it had cost to build and furnish the camp. Some of it would have to go for food, and John Wilson probably would expect good things to eat, but he'd get them. Ted had six woodcock, a gourmet's delight, in the freezer, and he would add the legal two days possession limit of six grouse. He'd need more than that, but after buying whatever was necessary, he'd still have enough money to put up a hard legal battle for Al when his father finally had to surrender. There would be at least twice as much money as Ted had told John McLean he would have. If more was needed, and it probably would be, he'd sell the camp. Ted gathered up the dirty towels and wash and dishcloths, put them in a bushel basket brought along for that purpose, and replaced them with fresh, clean laundry. The Beilu party, another proof of their sportsmanship, had left the camp in fine shape, with the dishes washed and stacked where they belonged and the floor clean. 
Tammy came in the open door, and Ted grinned at him. I guess we can go, Tammy, and you'd better rest a bit. You're going to the hills tonight. Timmy wagged an agreeable tail and trotted out to the pickup with his master. Ted eased the little truck onto the road. He'd sent Tammy with a load of food the night before the baby party arrived, and everything had gone without a hitch. Tammy had left shortly after midnight and returned two and a half hours later. The pack was empty save for the note Al had thrust in it. Dear Ted, Tammy come all right. This works good, huh? I got enough to last me anyhow two weeks more. Don't send Tammy before. The less you get to send him, the better it is. Good luck. Thanks. Ted sighed wearily. He'd hoped that, with passing time, the situation would clear itself or be cleared. If anything, it was worse. Definitely out of danger, but due for a long convalescence in the Lorton Hospital, Smokey Delbert had told everything. Starting from the Fordham Road, he had gone up Coon Valley with the intention of finding good places to set fox traps. He'd carried his rifle, because there was always a chance of seeing a fox or bobcat, predators upon which there was a bounty. He'd known Al Harkness was ahead of him, for Al's distinctive boot marks had been left in the soft place where the spring overflowed the Coon Valley Trail. Nearing the three sycamores, and without any warning at all, Al had risen from behind Glory Rock and shot. It was a simple, straightforward story, and one that bore out other known facts. By his own admission, Al had been in Coon Valley the same day. He did wear boots with soles of his own design, and therefore they were distinctive. Smokey Delbert, a woodsman of vast experience, might very well have seen these tracks, in spite of the fact that Loring Blade had missed them. Ted sighed again. The papers had printed Smokey's story, and most were sympathetic. There had even been a couple of resounding editorials demanding that Al be brought in, regardless of the cost and effort that might be expended to apprehend him, and face the justice which he so richly deserved. But editors were not the only ones who had swung to Smokey's side. Time, John McLean had asserted, made people forget. Only in this instance, it had made too many of them forget that Smokey Delbert was a vicious poacher. He had, instead, become the wronged innocent. And when Ted went into Lorton now, there were those who averted their faces when they passed him, or even crossed to the other side of the street to avoid meeting him at all. Carl Thornton had become something of a local hero. Nobody knew how the news had leaked out, but everyone knew that Crestwood's owner was paying all of Smokey's extensive hospital bills. That puzzled Ted, for Thornton had never seemed the type to care about anyone's welfare save his own. But he would do anything that worked to his own advantage, and perhaps he thought it worth his while, at the price of Smokey's hospital expenses, to have Lorton solidly behind him. There could be no doubt that Lorton was there. Cut it out, Ted urged himself. You don't like Thornton, but give him credit if credit's due. Ted swung up the Harkness Drive and parked. While Tammy went off on an inspection tour 
to assure himself that everything was as it should be, the boy took the basket of laundry inside. He grimaced. Modern in some respects, Al had by no means accepted the streamlined age as an unmixed blessing. He'd bought a freezer and a refrigerator because their advantages were obvious, but he scorned washing machines and was sure that, though clothes emerged from one might look clean, they couldn't possibly be as pure as those that were washed on a scrub board. Ted put the wash tub on its stand, filled it with hot water, added soap, and went to scrubbing. He rinsed the laundry, ran it through a hand wringer, and hung it out on a line stretched behind the house. An hour before sundown, he went back to camp to replace the bedding and wind his clotheslines on a spool. He got his own supper, fed Tammy, washed the dishes, and had just finished putting them where they belonged when the collie whined a warning. A car, followed by a second, came up the drive and, a moment later, there was an unnecessarily loud knock on the door. Ted opened it to confront a rather plump man, who was probably in his mid-thirties. He was dressed in a gaudy wool shirt, hunting pants, ten-inch lace boots, and around his middle was belted a hunting knife almost long enough to be a small sword. His black hair was a little wild and so were his eyes, but his smile was pleasant and his outstretched hand was quite steady. Ted? That's right. I'm Beamish, the other stated, a little thickly. By gosh, we found you! You certainly did. Ted smiled faintly. Hunters going into camp often did a little anticipatory celebrating, and evidently Arthur Beamish had been overdoing it. This the camp? he asked. No, the camp's farther up on the road. Good, Arthur Beamish said happily. You go in the woods. You go in the woods. More woods, the better. That's what I always say. What, what do you always say? Same thing, Ted grinned. If you want to follow me, I'll show you the way up there. Ride with ya, Beamish declared. That's just what I'll do. You're welcome. Ordering Tammy to stay in the house, Ted guided his exuberant guest to the pickup and opened the door for him. Arthur Beamish bellowed, Follow us, men! Ah, wilderness! He sat companionably close and draped a friendly arm across Ted's shoulder. Lots of grouse? Plenty. You like grouse hunting, eh? Best darn game there is, Beamish exploded. Ah, rather get me one grouse than forty-nine deer, and I get em too. You do? Didn't you ever hear about me? Ah, uh, Ted hesitated. Obviously, he was supposed to know his guest, but he didn't. But to say the wrong thing might mean to give offense. Uh, aren't you? That's right, Beamish said happily. I'm Beamish, the trap shooter. Traps in summer, grouse in season. Bruh, bruh, bruh. Up they go, bang. Down they come every time. Ted twisted uneasily. Three grouse was the daily bag limit. Nobody should need 
or take more than that. He calmed himself. As yet, nobody had taken more. He pulled into the camp and stopped. Fine camp, enthused Beamish, who could see only that part of it which was illuminated by the pickup's lights. Best I ever did see. Great little camp. The other two cars stopped, and the rest of the hunters got out. Even in the night, there was that about them, which at once set them apart from the quiet Beilu party. They were younger, more restless, and they fairly oozed that nervous sparkle which so often marks young executives. They were also sensible. Only Arthur Beamish and one other had been overindulging themselves. Definitely, the drivers of the two cars were in full possession of all their faculties. The three beautiful setters that had ridden in a pen in one of the car's trunks were as smartly turned out as the men. Obviously, they were hunting dogs, the best money could buy. But this crowd had money to spend. Come round, Arthur Beamish bellowed. Want ya to meet Ted? One by one, Ted was introduced to the rest of the party, and as he met them, he liked them. If they were young and restless, they were also competent and talented, and they had an air of belonging here in the wilderness. Probably this was not the first camp they'd ever seen. Well, let's go in, Ted suggested. Arthur Beamish bubbled. You get the best ideas. Ted let the men into the camp, watched closely as they inspected it, and knew definitely that they'd been in such places before. Their glances were quick but all-encompassing. One of them, and although Ted did not remember all the names, he thought this one was Tom Strickland, turned with a smile. This will do very well. Do you know where we can get a wet nurse? A what? Strickland grinned. A sort of combination cook, fire builder, sweeper upper, dishwasher. We all want to spend our time hunting. I think I can find somebody. Is nine dollars a day all right? Sure. Can you send him up tomorrow? Send him tonight, somebody yelled. Strickland said scathingly, I wouldn't inflict you wild hyenas on anyone tonight. I'll cook breakfast. Oh, my aching domain! Ted grinned. I'm sure I can send somebody tomorrow. Everything's okay, eh? Right as rain. Ted got grimly back into the pickup and started down the road. Nine dollars a day for fourteen days meant another hundred and twenty-six dollars that probably would be sorely needed when Al had his inevitable court day. But Ted hadn't wanted to accept the job tonight. Somehow, doing so would seem grasping. But he'd swallow his pride and take it tomorrow. He must think of nothing except clearing his father's name. Back at the house, Ted loaded Tammy's pack very carefully. Laying out in the Mahala, Al would not expect and did not need luxuries. Ted packed cornmeal and oatmeal, desiccated soup, a parcel of dried apricots, powdered milk, sugar, tea, flour. But when everything else was in, there was room for a parcel of frozen pork chops. Ted added them and a note. Dad, everything's fine. There are grouse hunters in the camp now, and 
There will be bear hunters next. Take care of yourself and let me know what you need. At five minutes past midnight, he strapped the pack on Tammy, took him to the back door, and let him out. Just as he did, there was almost a timid knock on the front door. He jumped nervously. Go to Al, he urged. Take it to Al, Tammy, and please run. He shut the back door, and perspiration broke on his brow as he stood anxiously near it. Callahan, whose suspicions should have been effectively lulled, was not lulled at all. He'd merely bided his time, struck at the right hour, and Ted was trapped. He crossed the floor on shaky legs and opened the door to come face to face with Nels Anderson. Ted gasped. His one-time working partner was pale and looked ill. Weariness had left its impression in great blue patches beneath both eyes. But it was not entirely physical weariness. Nels had suffered some terrible shock, and in his extremity, he had come to his friend. Nels, what's wrong? I, Nels forced the shadow of his former smile, am all right. Come on in. I, I do not want to bother you, but I saw your light and... What on earth have you been doing? Walking. Youth walking. All night? I... Nels looked at the floor. I did not want to see Hilda. I... I lose my job. How come? Nels smiled again, but it was a sickly smile. Mrs. Martin... She helpin' in the kitchen while hunting season on. She says, Nels, she says, the door on the walk-in cooler is stuck. I can't open it. Can you? I say, I open it, and Thornton comes. Told you to stay out of here, he yells. He was awful mad. Now get out and stay out. So, no more job. You'll get another one. Oh, sure. I get another one easy. Y you know where? Ted said recklessly. I know where you can work for the next two weeks. There's a bunch of hunters in my camp, and they're looking for somebody to do their cooking odd jobs. Get up there tomorrow morning and say I sent you. The pay is $9 a day. Stars shone in Nell's woebegone eyes. You mean it? Sure I mean it. Yeah? I go to Hilda. Nels had shuffled in the door, but he seemed to float out of it. Ted stared grimly at the black window. He needed the money himself, but Nels had a wife and five children, and whether or not they ate regularly depended on whether Nels worked steadily. Ted paced back and forth, then sank into a chair. Weariness overcame him, and he dozed. He wakened suddenly, sure he'd heard something. Then Tammy whined for admittance, and Ted got up to let him in. He took off the pack and looked for the note he knew he would find. Dear Ted, Tammy come again, as you know. I'm set right nice now. There's no need to send Tammy again for a couple weeks. Tell your bear hunters that there's a lot of bears hang out in Carter Valley. 
end of chapter 8.